0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Long QT syndrome can be a silent threat. Although not all patients with congenital long QT develop symptoms, there is the potential for dangerous arrhythmias, and those can cause sudden cardiac death. Can genetic testing guide clinicians in diagnosing and treating this condition? Our guest today is Dr. Dan Roden. He's Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology and Assistant Vice Chancellor for Personalized Medicine at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Welcome, Dr. Roden. Hi. Pleasure to have you today. You know, I think we might start with a couple of uh, paragraphs, if you would, or a sentence or two about personalized medicine. Tell us how you define that and what that means in your work.
1: Thank you for the opportunity to blow our own horn a little bit. Uh, (laughs) So as a clinician, we find that we treat patients in two, I think, sort of relatively distinct ways. One is we look at patients and we look at them as averages. Here is a patient with an LDL cholesterol of X and the clinical trial data say that we should treat that patient with statin to lower it to Y. And the data are really very good on that. And if you know nothing more about your patient or their risk profile, those are appropriate things to do. And so we try very hard in medicine to treat each patient as part of a population. That said, there are patients in whom, for example, certain statins to lower cholesterol carry a relatively high risk, especially at certain high doses, of causing severe adverse events. Those are rare. Statins are very well-tolerated drugs. But if you knew that about a patient, you might be able to choose among statin drugs, or you might consider alternate therapies for that particular patient. One of the most commonly used drugs in cardiovascular therapy today is Plavix, clopidogrel. And we know that response to clopidogrel varies across patients for many, many reasons. And genetics is one of those many reasons. I would be the last to say that genetics are are the be-all and end-all of variability in clopidogrel response, but there's no question that genetic factors play a big role. So if you know nothing more about your patient, you prescribe clopidogrel 75 milligrams a day after they've received a a drug-eluting stent. If you know a little bit more about your patient, and, for example, you knew that that patient was genetically unable to bioactivate clopidogrel, you might choose an alternate therapy, even though that alternate therapy might be more expensive and it might carry certain downsides. So the more you know about the patient, the more you're able to tailor therapy to that particular patient. And I think the concept of personalized medicine goes way beyond genetics. It goes into what people value. It goes into what people's expectations are. You know, if you have an 85-year-old patient who's taking 20 different medications, perhaps the best way of personalizing their therapy is to sit down with them and try to understand what it is they want to do and don't want to do and simplify their regimen. Those are all areas in which we think of personalizing care. So personalizing care for me means treating each patient that I see across the examining room table as a patient who is an individual with their own set of value beliefs, their own set of financial capabilities, their own set of literacy and numeracy, their ability to understand what to do with complicated medical regimens, and their own set of genetics. And all those things go in to try to figure out what the right thing to do for a particular patient is.
0: Well, I think that is a beautiful dissertation on personalized medicine. That's personalized medicine at its best. You included the elements of shared decision-making as well as all the biochemistry and the genetic interest in... It strikes me that at a time when physicians are now being asked to take care of a population of patients, and some of us are ill-equipped to do so because of the way we are able to, to or not collect data on our folks we're taking care of, but at that same time now you're bringing in the ability to look at each individual uniquely in a way that's to their best benefit.
1: As a segue to that, one of the big obstacles in trying to execute this kind of vision is exactly how to go about it. Logistically, for lack of a better term. So if I told you that you would want to have genetic information if you were going to prescribe Plavix for someone, the next question is, well, every time I order Plavix, I need to remember to order the genetic test, and then I need to remember to look it up, and I need to remember what to do with the result, and then I need to remember to contact the patient if I didn't get the dose right. And I think that those kinds of logistic barriers are so enormous that it becomes difficult to sort of think of how to plug genetics into the flow of just taking care of patients. So what we're trying to do here, and there are a number of places across the country that are trying to do this, I think we're probably one of the leaders, in fact I know we're one of the leaders, is we are routinely offering genotyping for variants that are important for clopidogrel as well as many other drugs to patients who come to our cath lab. The data are collected, and if the patient turns out to be, have a variant genotype and turns out to have been prescribed clopidogrel, because not everyone who goes to the CAT lab gets clopidogrel, then the electronic medical record system fires alerts to physicians telling them that this patient may have an unusual response. So I think the only way to incorporate this new kind of data set into the flow of healthcare is to do it in a preemptive way. If you have the genetic information in your electronic medical record at the time a drug is prescribed, then it's likely that that information could be used. If you have to wait around for the result and remember to order it, then it never gets used.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. It's the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Dan Roden. He's Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology and Assistant Vice-Chancellor for Personalized Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. We're discussing genetic testing for long QT syndrome. And actually, Dan, we've been discussing the requirements for HIT, a different kind of electrical system. But I do want to turn to long QT, and let's again start with the basics. How about a definition of long QT?
1: Well, in the olden days, that was easy. And this is a reflection on modern genetics. What happened was the disease was described in the 50s and 60s, and it was described in families where there were sudden deaths in children, and when they look at the rest of the family, they find the QT interval on in the electrocardiogram was not prolonged a little bit. It was prolonged a real lot. So if you accept the idea that maybe 450 milliseconds is about as long as you want a QT interval to get, or 480 or some number like that, these QT intervals in the initial families that were ever studied were 700 milliseconds. So not subtle. And so that's where the long QT syndrome began, a a really unusual, rare, almost boutique kind of disease. You know, you might see it once in your career, and it makes for great roundsmanship. So time passes, and it becomes obvious that this is a genetic disease, runs in families, the pattern of inheritance becomes established. And when people start to look at large families, they'll say, look, here's a child with the syndrome. Here's another child with the syndrome. So one of the two parents must have the syndrome, and you look at the two parents, and lo and behold, neither of them have long QT intervals. What's that all about? So that's what we call variable penetrance. It means that on a genetic basis, one of those individuals must carry a mutation that they've transmitted to their children, and the children have the disease. But sometimes people have a mutation and just have a normal electrocardiogram, and other times they'll have the same mutation and have a very abnormal electrocardiogram. And that's uh, one of the problems in the long QT syndrome. And parenthetically, modern genetics is uncovering that kind of phenomenon in a litany, not dozens, but hundreds and hundreds of diseases where we now understand that many individuals may carry rare genetic abnormalities that in them do nothing, but in somebody else might be really catastrophic or devastating.
0: Well, I think I'm going to ask you to look your primary care doc in the eye and advise about genetic testing and making the diagnosis of QT prolongation.
1: So first of all, I think that patients with the congenital long QT syndrome should be followed by arrhythmia specialists and sometimes even among arrhythmia specialists, among arrhythmia specialists that specialize in the genetic syndromes. That's not to say that other people can't follow them, but there are these, it's not just the nuances of the diagnosis, but it is a moving field and people who keep track of the motion in the field are the people who the patients should be seeing. And we haven't talked about the subtleties of genetic testing, so there are right now three common subtypes of the long QT syndrome, and there are a total of 13 subtypes altogether, 10 of which are quite rare and and three of which are, are commoner. They all present with QT prolongation and risk of syncope and sudden death, but some of them more commonly present during exercise, some of them more commonly present during sleep. There are certain drugs that are particularly bad for some of them, certain drugs that are not so bad for others. So I think that if you have a family where there's known to be congenital long QT syndrome, they should at least be seen once by a person who specializes in that disease and considered to be followed by them. That said, I think we're entering into an era when people will start to get genetic testing either on their own or through the healthcare system, and we will end up with people who will come to the primary care doctor or to the arrhythmia specialist and say, you know, I never asked for this, but I have this genetic report here that says I have a rare genetic variant that might make me drop over dead from the congenital long QT syndrome. What do you think of that? And so that's why I wrote this editorial saying that, I think we have to think twice before we start to provide genetic information to patients when it's not accompanied by any data, and all it does is create anxiety. On the part
0: of everyone in the circle, both uh, both the office.
1: The patient, uh, the patient's family, the physician, the genetic testing company, everybody. So so I think that that's, that's the thing that I'm most concerned about. The particular article that I wrote the editorial around was actually asking the question, if you do genetic testing on family members of patients who have the congenital long QT syndrome, what is their prognosis? And it turns out that among people who share the mutation with the carriers, there is a group of people who have mutations but who have normal QT intervals. And the interesting thing is that their prognosis is really pretty good. Is it perfect probably not, but it's very difficult to figure out exactly how high, how big their risk is. And that's why I think that, you know, this is sort of gets into sort of sub-sub-sub-specialization, and it turns out the QT interval, again, is the big predictor. But I think at a more generic stage, we're we're starting to get a sense that everybody on the face of the planet carries some genetic variation that might not be important for them, but it might be disease-associated in the next person who has the same variant. So I think we have to think, two or three times, maybe 20 or 30 times before we start to sequence everybody's genome and just stick it willy-nilly into the electronic medical record. It's going to be an interesting challenge.
0: The analysis and the correct and appropriate implementation of all of this knowledge is pretty much impossible without a connected, sophisticated HIT system.
1: I think that's right. So we think that it all has to be done through the medical record, but we started our conversation talking about the role of genetic testing for choosing among drugs or choosing among drug doses, and that's because the data are the best in that field right now. Although I live in Tennessee, I do believe in evolution. And so, let me give you an evolutionary perspective on that. If there were, in Neanderthal days or in early human days, a genetic variant that was common in the population and conferred very high risk for some really terrible thing, like early heart attacks or cancer at the age of 15, that variant would die out over generations. It provides a tremendous survival disadvantage. And so... What we end up with is a set of common variations or variants that are present in 10, 20, 30, 40% of a population that might individually increase risk for heart disease or for cancer a tiny little bit. Those things can persist in a population, and we're using the tools of modern genetics to find them, and they're biologically very interesting, and they might be clues to new drugs and, and that sort of thing, but we don't have risk markers that increase your risk for breast cancer by 30-fold and that are present at a frequency of 30% in a population. There are such variants, but they're very rare. That said, there are common variants, things that are present in 30% of a population, that might make people respond to drugs in a very, very different way. And that's because The Neanderthals and our early human ancestors were never exposed to drugs. There's no evolutionary pressure that says, you know, let this variant die out in a population or not. So we do have common genetic variants that may, in fact, play a huge role in determining variability in response to drugs. And that's why people who are interested in using genetic information in healthcare today are focusing a lot of effort on using genetic variants that are important for variable drug responses.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Dan Roden about genetic testing for long QT syndrome and the challenges in managing patients uh, with that syndrome. Dr. Roden, thank you so much for being our guest
1: today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com.